this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Music, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alex Kuchma, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Jonathan Mayle about his new book, Harlem World, How Hip-Hop's Super Showdown Changed Music Forever. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. I really appreciate your time. Uh, I am excited to have you on. Um, This has been one of my most anticipated books of 2023. I loved it. And yeah, I'm excited to be able to have this conversation. Fantastic. Now let's let's get into it. (laughs) Can you start by by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up coming to this project? Yeah, so I guess first and foremost, I have always been a, an avid writer. Um, I always joke it's like the only thing I was ever like truly good at. Um, so, you know, I go back to like writing for my high school newspaper and everything like that. And I, um, you know, I, I ended up becoming a reporter for, you know, and I still am a reporter on a freelance basis for a really long time. Um, and I also took a career as a high school teacher because it's another passion of mine is uh, teaching and, and working with young people. But Towards the end of uh, 2021, towards the end of the 2020-2021 school year, which was the hybrid learning year, um, I was starting to get that teacher burnout. And I was just thinking like, oh man, I've always wanted to write a book and this might be the time to do it. I could use a year off. So, you know, basically I had a few different ideas that I was into pursuing. I knew I wanted to do nonfiction. Um, I'm an avid reader and like, so many different nonfiction spaces, but my favorite thing is cult- is uh, cultural history. So I had a few ideas. Um, I went out and sought an agent, and everything kind of came together quickly. You know, I had this idea that I really loved about um, this sort of micro history within the founding of hip hop. That you know, I, we were talking a little bit off the air before how it's almost kind of an urban legend. It's something that people talk about, but it's not particularly documented. And so I wanted to kind of shove off on a journey to document what I consider to be a really exciting and uh, kind of undertold story from that early hip hop era. So here we are now, you know, books coming out um, very soon, you know, September 12th, 2023. And 
I'm holding it in my hand right now. I have one of those early copies and um, it still feels kind of weird. You know, it feels like some weird dream that I'm holding a book that I wrote, but you know, here we are. Congratulations. It's uh, yeah, it's always a cool accomplishment to be able to have something and have something physical that you can hold in your hands. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. It's like, wow, I did a whole book, you know, like, yeah, I mean, I'm a nerd for that stuff. You know, like I've even like, I've, when I first opened the package, I like smelled it. I was like, wow, it smells like a book. So yeah, it's an exciting time. So what is your background in hip hop culture? What does, yeah, where do you kind of root yourself there? Well, I'm just an avid fan of, I would say, American culture kind of post-World War II. So that falls in, you know, a lot of different things have happened since then. There's a lot of different eras. Like, I'm, I'm a major Woodstock guy. I love reading about Woodstock. I love reading about um, 70s movies. You know, I think they're super fascinating. Um, and my, you know, hip hop for me is one of those things where I think it's, it's not as documented as it should be, especially in the early era. So you still get that thrill of learning something and, and that thing that you learn, it's not necessarily common knowledge. So that's kind of where my interest in hip hop is, is you, you're constantly being told by people who have studied hip hop, like, Oh, did you hear about this guy? He was important. Or, Oh, did you know about this location? This was important. And, you know, it's not really widely known. So I actually discovered this story that Harlem world is about. Um, as a teacher, I was making a curriculum for a class called American pop culture. And I wanted to do a little bit of hip hop, um, material. And I watched this documentary called hip hop evolution on, um, Netflix, which yeah, to the listeners, I'd recommend checking it out. It's very, very good. And, um, in, in one of the episodes, they just briefly touched on this, this battle between these two crews and these two crews knew each other coming up and they had a relationship and they just briefly touched on it. And after like 10 minutes, you know, they moved on to something else. And I was like, you know, that's kind of interesting. I don't know why we're just stopping at 10 minutes on the story. And I kind of put the idea in my back pocket. Um, and you know, that kind of led me to wanting to do this, but I, I don't consider myself to be like a true, uh, pure hip hop scholar. Uh, like some of the people that I've interviewed for this book, I'm more of a, I'm more of a raconteur across a lot of different pop culture history. So it's not, you know, obviously hip hop is a love of mine, but it's not, the only thing that I'm interested in in my research. I tend to have really long arms when it comes to wanting to kind of research different things and grab at different topics. That's fair. So this story particularly, so we talked about it being like an urban legend and uh, obviously within the, the hip hop evolution documentary, but what exactly is this story? What's the, what's the event here for those that are unfamiliar? Yeah. So this story, so in a nutshell, obviously we're going to get more, we're going to get deeper into this, but essentially there were three top hip hop crews in New York in 1981. Um, and this was an era when hip hop was just starting to break out of the underground scene where you're getting recordings, you're getting a couple songs on the radio. Um, and the, the most successful group was Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Um, and then you also had the Cold Crush Brothers and the Fantastic Romantic Five. The kind of the, the piece that gets the story moving is Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five were actually booked for a tour, which at the time was unheard of in hip hop. Hip hop acts didn't go on tour. You know, it was things that, you know, it was strictly advertised on flyers. <laughs> and like, you're like, okay, Saturday night, come to this basement. 
So the idea that they would go on a tour was crazy. And that left kind of this vacuum at the very top of the New York hip hop scene in the summer of 1981. So that left two crews left, the Cold Crush Brothers and the Fantastic Romantic Five. And they competed against each other in a battle with $1,000 on the line at a nightclub called the Harlem World Club. And it just became this really epic event in the hip-hop circles in the city. You know, these were the two top crews. They were competing against each other. Um, and battles were not the same back then as they are now. They were actually closer to talent shows where each group would just kind of do their thing. And then the fans would vote, you know, at the end of the night who did a better job. Um, and the really significant thing here is that this was actually recorded on a bootleg cassette tape. So... Even though this was a live event and a live space, the actual cassette was copied over and over again, distributed all around New York, and the battle became kind of one of these seminal moments in hip-hop where you looked and you said, this is high-level stuff. This is not this kind of ragtag, ad hoc music. You know, this is something that's becoming more polished, even in the underground space. So that's kind of what the main sort of event of the book is. It's this battle between these two crews who have this very intimate, very long connection between each other, um, having traded members through the past years, having gone to school together, um, to kind of, it all came to a head in this in this moment in Harlem World on July 3rd, 1981. So the two crews, let's, let's provide some background here. So we have the Cold Crush Brothers, um, which is a name that may be familiar to people that are kind of familiar with hip-hop anyhow. Um, and then you have the other crew, the Fantastic Romantic Five, which I would say is a little bit less known, but still equally important within this kind of early sphere. But if we break down those two, so the Cold Crush Brothers, we can start with. But for those listening, who were the Cold Crush Brothers? So the, the iteration of the Cold Crush Brothers that is well known today is led by MC Grandmaster Kaz, who I would say is one of the most significant figures from this era of hip-hop period. Um, you have two DJs, Charlie Chase and Tony Tone. And then you have Easy AD, Almighty KG, and Jerry D. Lewis. So it's a group of six. Two DJs, four MCs, and Kaz referred to himself as the captain of the four. So he's sort of their, their leader in terms of writing their routines um, and kind of just crafting everything, telling you know the DJs what they need to play behind them. Um, it's sort of just creating that stage show. Gotcha. And I guess for those listening at home as well, it's also important to note that at this era in hip-hop history, the DJ had a, a more... I want to say a more noticeable role within the, the crew, but they were certainly kind of put at the forefront uh, of the... Um, of any individual rap crew. So the DJ had a, a much more significant role to play than the than the rapper, which would definitely end up uh, kind of overtaking those responsibilities later on into yeah, the, the I mean, 90s, well, for instance. Yeah, I mean, in this era, there was a shortage of equipment. So the DJ had to be the most important guy in the crew because he had the DJ set, which you needed in order to perform. So if he didn't like you, then you're totally screwed. Like, you... There's no MC without a DJ back then. It's not like nowadays where everything's digital and you can just hit play and you know start start rapping. That that didn't exist back then. So you had to be you know in order to be an MC, you had to either have DJ skills and equipment, 
or you had to be a very affable, friendly guy and get in close with some DJs. Exactly. Okay, let's move over to the Fantastic Romantic Five. So who were these cats? So the Fantastic Romantic Five, in their final iteration, was led by DJ Grand Wizard Theodore. So he was sort of their main figurehead. And then you had five MCs. So they were also a group of six, even though it's called the Fantastic Romantic Five, because DJ Grand Wizard Theodore was not considered to be one of the five. He was kind of the guy behind them. But you had uh, Prince Whipper Whip, Ruby D, the now uh, deceased Daughter Rock, and then you had the brothers, Robbie Rob and Kevy Kev, who eventually would take the names Master Rob and Waterbed Kev. A lot of a lot of early hip hop scholarship, and not necessarily scholarship that was written early on, but scholarship that focuses on this early period. They focus primarily on the Bronx. And it makes sense. The the West Bronx, the South Bronx, these are places that are really pivotal in the kind of formation of the kind of early yeah, early culture. Um, but this book centers in a different setting. Um, it focuses in Harlem, and it kind of makes the argument that that Harlem is and kind of a key region outside of the Bronx that hip hop is thriving um, in during its early kind of formative years. Can you expand on on that perhaps? But the the importance of Harlem as a region in New York for hip hop culture. Yeah, absolutely. So the Bronx is definitely where hip hop was born. You know, I'm not. There's no disputing that. Um, and a lot of the major figureheads in this book are from the Bronx originally. So. Um, you know, you have a great ed- anecdote that Grand Wizard Theater told me where uh, he started DJing at kind of a young age, like 12, 13, and he would go to pick, he'd go to some girl's apartment in the Bronx in one of these buildings. There'd be a lot of like stick up kids hanging around or, you know, he called them mean people, <laughs> but they would all get out of the way for him because like, oh, that's the DJ. That's, so this 12 year old kid is just kind of walking down the hallway with all these big tough guys just kind of scattering because he's so cool. Um so, you know, a lot of this day-to-day life takes place in the Bronx, but um, Harlem is really significant because that, it was and remains the, the showcase center for black culture. And hip-hop, you know, although there was a massive um, Hispanic influence as well, but hip-hop is a major piece of black culture. And so for a lot of the important groups, the, the big venues were in Harlem. So you have places like, well, very famously, the Audubon Ballroom, which is where um, Malcolm X was assassinated, but they also threw hip-hop parties in there. Uh, you had places like the Apollo, um, and you know you had places like my book's uh, title club, Harlem World. Um, so you had a lot of these places that became like showcase centers for hip-hop away from the Bronx, where you can draw a crowd from Manhattan, you can draw the Bronx crowd because Harlem is so close. Um, you kind of have you know, a, a bit more of a reach than, say, just a block party on a street in the Bronx that might not have even been advertised heavily. Um, and you also have a lot of important hip-hop people that are from Harlem. You know, Curtis Blow is from Harlem. Uh, the Treacherous Three are from Harlem. I interviewed L.A. Sunshine for this book, and he talked about, um, he gave me a really funny line. He said, you know, everyone talks about how the Bronx is burning, but I couldn't really pay attention to that because parts of Harlem were burning, too. And uh, it's it's funny, but it's also poignant, you know, given that so much of the attention does go to the Bronx. But remember, the Bronx and Harlem are so close to each other. And 
you know, I don't think hip hop would be what it is today without the influence of Harlem just as a place, as a, as a center for, you know, art and culture like it is. Yeah, one of my favorite moments in the book is just the the brief description of the Audubon. So I would see I would see hip hop flyers from this time period that would take place at the Audubon Ballroom. Um, and again, it's the place where Malcolm X was was assassinated uh, some decades earlier. But the venue itself remained active and it catered to a hip hop crowd um, uh, during kind of these years that we're speaking of. One of the things that you end up noting is that the bullet holes were still present in the walls and in the podium um, at the Audubon. And I think that that feeling in the air that this is, this is like a, a political space, I think is, was probably present in the, in the feeling of the atmosphere at those early events. Um, and I, I never, I never quite drew those two connections together as in this is the space where Malcolm X was shot and therefore it actually, it would resonate in the space itself. Um, but I think it probably would. Absolutely. And, you know, just to do a really quick aside, one of the biggest influences on um, hip hop culture is actually Malcolm X. Uh, One of the biggest early influences, I should say, you know, his way of talking, his kind of cool, laid back way of talking, but always being so precise with his wording. Um, and Muhammad Ali was a big influence as well on the early MCs. You know, the, this is not any kind of a secret. This has been, you know, well documented. But I, I always find that to be an interesting connection where an art form that Malcolm X helped inspire, you know, is being performed right in front of the bullet holes that pass through Malcolm X. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. You talked about it briefly there, but Harlem World. So it's the title of the book, and it's the kind of main stage for the the main event of the book, which is the battle between the Fantastic Romantic Five and the Cold Crush Brothers. Um, Harlem World. Are you able to expand a little bit on the history of the venue, what the venue is, and kind of the setting that this main story takes place at? Yeah, so it's an interesting place. It was opened in, there's actually a really great story behind its, its opening. It was opened in 1978, um, and it's it, the guy who was kind of leading it was a guy that went by Fat Man, and he was involved in some illicit activity. But he had um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of local people, sort of like local businessmen, kind of were the public faces of it, you know, kind of like a front. And it was dubbed like a cultural center. And they actually, you know, they did a lot of interesting things in there. So it wasn't just like a nightclub. They had kids disco and like Sunday afternoons. um, And they had some other events of that nature. But the the club itself was, it was born to be this really gigantic space, this palatial space, very new, very modern. Um, it's, It's stage has a very famous backdrop that has like this, sort of alien abduction scene going on with some people dancing and um, very, very much planet rock. I think of like Africa Bambada when I, when I look at it, um, when I look at the photos, that is, it's got multiple levels. It's got an upstairs where there was actually a group of people living up there called the Harlem world crew. Uh, And these were, you know, these were real guys who were, you know, responsible for setting up the stage and, you know, doing the microphones and, and all that, but they lived up there. And that's where um, they would invite members of the crews. The early hip hop people would come up there to hang out and smoke and do some cocaine or, you know, whatever it was going to be. Um, 
so and you also had a basement which was more of like kind of a chill space from what i understand but uh the club was packed though on the on the big nights you know this became i mean grandmaster Kaz has cited it multiple times this became the best place to play if you were a hip-hop group or you know even a hip-hop individual if you were an up-and-coming hip-hop star in new york in the 70s and early 80s this was the place uh so it became kind of like that sort of radio city music hall of hip-hop i would say like if you're good you're gonna play there um yeah so the club you know some of the big physical attributes there was this very very long bar um the performance space could house about a thousand people obviously it had the disco ball this was still a time where disco was really popular so it wasn't always hip-hop shows they would have like I think famously I read in an oral history that Eartha Kitt used to perform there, who, you know, I, I just find that to be really funny. But, yeah, it had a lot of the disco infrastructure, uh, but it was, you know, it was a hip-hop space. I mean, this was a place where if you came, if you showed up at one of these parties on one of these flyers, you were expecting top-notch entertainment. Um, and this is also, you know, I think I've said this already, but it's also a time where hip-hop was a live art form. So... It's not like people were showing up because they had the, the, the Cold Crush's record, or the Fantastic Five's record. It was more of like, we're going to show up because we love DJ Grand Wizard Theodore and he's going to show us some really cool stuff. Yeah, I found this to be one of the most informative chapters in the book for me. Um, I didn't know much about Harlem World. You hear about it, it's referenced. Um, you see it on old flyers. Um, of course, like Mace ends up naming his like crew and album after Harlem World. There's like there's references that are thrown in and you hear about the club. Um, I didn't understand the kind of material aspects of what the club was and what it did and what its role was. Um, one of the things that was really interesting to me was it wasn't a club that just had like a weekly rap night, which is the case for a lot of places, right? Clubs will end up occupying other genres. They end up doing their thing. They're just a club. And then one night of the week on Sunday, Saturday, what have you, they'll end up having a rap night that ends up catering a pretty large crowd for that one night of the week. But there was multiple DJs that were big at the time that would have space at the Harlem world multiple times throughout the week, um, which I found really interesting. I also found it uh, fascinating that there was um, the the other acts that would come through um, major like R and B acts, disco acts, et cetera. um, It was, it felt like it catered to that kind of, I don't know, black art form anyhow. Um, and specifically, yeah, it felt like a hip hop venue, um, which was something I just, I maybe I just didn't realize about Harlem World prior. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, there was a lot, and it had a lot going for it too. It was steps away from the subway. It was nice centrally located. It was across the street from a mosque, actually, who always complained about the noise. The mosque is still there from what I understand, but, uh, and now Harlem world's like some giant clothing store, but yeah, it was, it was, it was an important stage. You know, like you think about, you just think about like every genre or many genres, I should say, have that stage, you know, like when you think about country music, right? Like they have the Opry where it's like, if you're someone good in country music, you have to play the Opry. Right. So, you know, that's kind of what Harlem world was in the early days of hip hop. You know, we're still talking about the, the pre-record era. 
So leading up to the battle here, so I want to talk about the battle itself, but there is some like kind of preamble or drama or, I don't know, circumstance that I think should probably be detailed here. So are you able to, yeah, talk about the, talk about the lead up to the battle um, and like some of the things that I found fascinating is like the, the idea that the Fantastic Romantic Five was like the more popular crew. Um, and it felt like Cold Crush Brothers had the kind of street cred or authenticity, but they had something to kind of prove in the in the battle. But can, yeah, can you talk about this kind of lead up and the circumstances involved in the battle itself before we actually talk about the battle? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is my, this is my personal favorite part of the book is kind of this dichotomy between the crews and kind of how they eventually like shifted and found themselves like in the right crew. So, you know, Kaz, for example, in an early version, it wasn't even called the cold crush, but he had what were called the salt and pepper MCs, which was, um, Prince Whipper Whip and daughter rock who then migrated over to fantastic. And there's, you know, there's a little, I mean, we could spend all day doing like the, all the movement between the two groups, but the, you know, the point is they, they know each other very well and fantastic put together this image that made them extremely popular. Okay. They were hurt. They were dressed to the nines everywhere they went. Even if it wasn't a show, they made sure when they went out in public on the streets, they dressed super clean. They looked really good. Um, they rehearsed so hard on all their dance routines. You know, they had Grand Wizard Theater would play the biggest pop hits. You know, he'd play Michael Jackson. He'd play um, Tina Marie. Uh, and they would kind of work off of that. And so they gave a show. That's how they described it to me. You know, it wasn't just about it wasn't just about giving lines of rap, you know, just giving, like, really great wordplay. It was about the whole show, the costumes, the lights, you know, the, the whole thing. Um, and Cold Crush was more about keeping it, quote, real. You know, like they were the real guys from the streets. They had much tougher lyrics, if that makes sense. You know, tough ass four MCs is one of their, uh, it's one of the chapter titles in the book. And it's one of the things that they said when they first got on stage. Um, and Kaz was just a genius lyrically. So he would always say, it's like, yeah, yeah, they got the girls screaming because, you know, they're so pretty and they look so good. But when I say something, people go, oh my God, you know, people freak out. Because Kaz, and he, and it's true, Kaz was, you know, he was, a, he was a poet. He was not just doing throw your hands in the air, wave them like you just don't care. You know, he was, he was writing these stories. He was writing these narrative raps that were just unfathomable compared to, you know, what else was out there at the time. Um, and so the, the dichotomy between the two groups is kind of my, my favorite topic in the book, just to kind of get a sense of, what was hitting with audiences. Um, and they were both super popular. Fantastic. You know, Cold Crush and Fantastic weren't necessarily supposed to battle, if that makes sense. The conversation just got kind of started by the Harlem World crew, who was like, guys, like, we can do a really big event. Why don't we just do this? And then as the time approached, they started going back and forth more, doing some trash talk in the streets. Um, there was a famous like not famous worldwide, but like among everyone in the crews like that I interviewed, they all pointed to this one event where, you know, they, there was this big like argument outside of Kaz's window. He lived on the first floor of a, of a building. And so he was sick in bed, but he heard, um, Kevy Kev yelling at, um, 
oh, I forget who this was. I think it was, I think it might've been JDL, but, um, either way, guys from each crew were like screaming at each other in the streets, you know, like F you, F you guys, you know, we'll show you, we'll battle you, blah, blah, blah. And Kaz had to like run out in like his pajamas in the middle of the street to like back up his people. Um, but you know, honestly, and you know, this is something that I think, um, gets looked over a lot in this early era. These guys are so young and this is like a sports kind of trash talk, you know, like that. It didn't get to be like that kind of like dangerous talk of like the nineties and hip hop. You know what I mean? Like no one was going to ever punch each other or anything like that. But you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like gang related. Like there, it was nothing like that. It was just like, it was like two guys on the, on the football field, you know, just talking crap after a play um, and getting ready for the next play. And so the buildup was kind of intense though, because what started happening is at all the shows that each crew did leading up until the battle. And, you know, these crews were performing six nights a week often. Uh, they would give out flyers and say, hey, we need your support. You know, it's a participation thing. So whoever gets the loudest applause at the end of the night, that's who wins. So, you know, please show up. Please come and, you know, help us. And it was called Stacking the Room. So Joe Conzo, uh, who was the photographer for Cold Crush, he would always make sure to tell everyone, you got to come. You got to come. We need everyone from the Bronx. Come on, come on, come on. And Fantastic Five would do the same at their shows. They'd say, oh, come on, we need you at the battle. This is going to be big, you know. And um, that was kind of the lead up, you know. And and people were talking, you know. Remember, it's the summertime. School's out. Um, people are looking for something to do. And this was this was going to be kind of the big event of, of the hip-hop season, if that makes sense. So, yeah, so the run-up was, was big, not just among the crews who were talking some trash and – and, you know, getting ready with all their new routines and whatnot, but also just among the people around in the Bronx and Harlem, just being aware, like there's this big show coming up and we're, you know, we have to go. Yeah. It's been, it's been a little while since I finished reading the, the text. So perhaps my memory is not remembering things absolutely correctly. Um, but one of the things that I thought was interesting in this kind of chapter is the idea that the Cold Crush Brothers and the Fantastic Romantic Five, they each had like their own individual idea of what the battle was going to be. And it seemed to be different for each person. Like for the Fantastic Romantic, or sorry, for, for Cold Crush Brothers, it seemed to be a much more confrontational event. It seemed like something that they were going to kind of throw in jabs. They were going to, they were going to, make the the battle a little bit more aggressive whereas fantastic romantic five felt like they were they were the ones that were they were more popular they were simply gonna do a good routine right so they practiced a good routine as did the cold crush brothers but it didn't feel like oh like we're like battling in the sense that we would think of battling today whereas it felt like the cold crush brothers really had something to prove and they kind of felt they they almost treated the battle in the same way that we would kind of think of a rap battle in today's world, um, which I found was interesting that the the two kind of players had different ideas about what they were even doing on that July night. Yeah, I mean, I would say that that's somewhat correct. I would say that, um, I would say that the like the way to win a battle back then was a little bit different. You know, now like people who have watched Eight Mile, you know, you just have to get the most disses in that you can and you know, shame the guy basically back then it was, it was really just a talent show it was like fantastic's got time on stage. Cold crush has time on stage. Who's going to do better. Who's got the better 
routine, who's got the better act, right? Um, what you are right about, though, is Cold Crush, from what I've, what I've seen and what I've talked to, they had the bigger chip on their shoulders. Um, Fantastic had more fans, like, and Kaz admits that. Like, Fantastic was more popular. Now, that doesn't mean that they were necessarily better. That's what Kaz says. But he knew that in order to really make this close and get a good audience reaction, that they would have to bring out all new routines, all new, um, all new breaks, which is the term for um, uh, samples, we would call them now. But, you know, parts of songs to scratch on to the record. Um, so, you know, Kaz would, he, they did like a little skit halfway through. They had a theme. They came out with plastic guns wearing white suits. It was called the Gangster Chronicles. Um, they had a skit where they had Charlie Chase come down from the DJ booth and put a stethoscope on uh, one of them and say he didn't make it, which is like so, um, you know, when I think about it, it's just so different than like what they were previously known for. Um, and, they obvi- and they did a lot of their classic stuff. They did the Cats in the Cradle routine, which is amazing, you know, where he just they do the melody of Cats in the Cradle, but they say um, other MCs can't deal with us. We are the four known as the Cold Crush. Um, they did take shots at Fantastic. They talked about like, and I'm not I'm just going to paraphrase like, well, you have fancy clothes and, you know, your mom dresses you up all nice. But that doesn't mean that you're better than us at, at hip hop and and whatnot. And Fantastic kind of just their strategy was just to do what they always do. Theodore said it was just another night. You know, I would, he said he was nervous, um, which I get. You know, it's a thousand bucks on the line, which for a bunch of 19-year-old kids in 1981 from the Bronx, like, that's pretty good. Um, and Theodore, you know, he said he was nervous, but they just did what they usually did. Um, and they just crushed it, you know. So he, um, the, the probably the biggest moment of the battle is um, when Fantastic started off their set. And uh, Theodore just, you know, where... Um, Cold Crush came on stage and they immediately started rapping and Kaz did one of these awesome routines. You know, they like just the lyricism was amazing. All Theodore did was just play Square Biz by Tina Marie, just play the record. And then, and the Fantastic Five danced, you know, they had a little dance routine. Whipper Whip said he did a split with his head on his knee. Um, and he's not as nimble now as he was back then. But that just, I think that really shows the the dichotomy, the contrast of it, where, Fantastic was more just doing what they knew would get the audience going as opposed to like trying to trying to prove a point. Um, But they wanted to win, though, that, you know, that is indisputable. They talked about how especially Kevy Kev, he was the most um, he's the most vocal member of um, the Fantastic Five. And he was saying they're bums and they're always going to be bums. And we just wanted to prove once again to their face that they're bums and um and they did. I mean, you know, they had one dig line, I think, at Cold Crush. It was just like, like, besides Kaz, you're all just guys. You'll see no bums in Fantastic Five. Um, which, by the way, you know, is super tame compared to, like, what people say now. But, yeah, I mean, in terms of the actual, like, battle, um, you could make the argument that, that Cold Crush took it more seriously and put more pressure on themselves. Um but, you know, out of that pressure, though, came just incredible material, you know, which we'll get into when we talk about cassettes. But um, Cold Crush's effort, I think, should be celebrated, even, you know, no matter what actually happened. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. 
the rage of the earth, we made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, yeah, yeah, I love it. And, I love the. Sorry, I was just going to say my. I think the, the telling stat is that Cold Crush was on stage for thirty-one minutes. Fantastic was on stage for fourteen minutes. I think that is the most telling stat to show you like the two groups' approaches. I love it. I love the. I love the picture that's painted. Um, okay, you. You obviously we talked a little bit about the routine here and, and what the night actually had, but it takes place July third, nineteen eighty-one, right? Nineteen eighty-one. Um, what happens that night? What? Who's the? Who's the victor? Who takes it home? What's the? Uh, talk about the night. Yeah. So uh, the groups arrived and they kind of met upstairs at uh, DJ Randy from the Harlem World Crew and kind of you know, the dressing room area. And uh, they, now this is a story that gets disputed by everyone. No one really remembers, but apparently there was talk of splitting the prize, 700, 300, each group gets 500 and then they just announce a winner. But uh, Grand Wizard Theodore was very much in favor of making it winner take all because he knew how many people were going to be there that night for fantastic, how many people they invited, especially um, young ladies who as you know, since time began, since concerts began, those are the loudest uh, people at the concert. And he knew that they'd uh, have the room stacked with their girlfriends and all their friends and et cetera. So um, the night starts off, you know, there's other people on the lineup. Uh, Busy B. Starsky performed. Um, some of the other, go- you know, old figures from hip hop were there. Um, and then about midnight, they called the battle to begin. Um, fant- uh, sorry, Cold Crush went first. They entered through the crowd down a staircase um, Kaz said it felt like they were going to a boxing match and they absolutely tore it up. They did some awesome routines. They did a, um, they did one of my favorites, which is ashes to ashes and dust to dust. We are the four known as the cold crush. Um, for me, like that is just such a, um, Kaz type of rhyme. You're taking something kind of biblical and you're, you know, just saying like, we're going to be around forever. Like we're the cold crush forever and ever and ever. Um, sorry, as I'm flipping through the book, I'm trying to find the other quotes. Oh yeah. So basically they, um, basically Kaz wanted to just wow everyone and the routines were so tight. They really did a great job of doing, um, of using a lot of different samples, you know, love rap by Spoonie G, um, rocket in my pocket, which is what by Sarone, which is what they did. Um, the cats in the cradle routine too. Um, and you know, they got a great reaction. They got a great reaction, and uh, Grand Wizard Theodore said, like, he got a little bit nervous only when they started seeing Cold Crush, because Cold Crush was awesome. So then there was a really quick intermission, and then you have um, the Fantastic Five MCs come on the stage. People are already screaming before they say anything, and um, 
Then they do a little call and response. They're like, if you're having a good time, say Theodore. And everyone in the audience shouted Theodore. Um, and then he puts on Square Biz, like I, like I told you about a second ago. And uh, it just it goes nuts. <laughs> like, it was like an earthquake. From the, you know, I've, and I talked to people who were in the crowd as well as people who were on stage. And just, it was pandemonium as soon as he put on Square Biz. Because that song, which by the way, I love that song to this day. Um, it's on my playlist for, you know, what I listen to just when I'm taking a walk. Um, and that song was a massive hit in 1981 when he put it on. So it was kind of with this different approach than, you know, Cold Crush, which is like, let's show our technique and wow them. It was more like, all right, what's going to make everyone scream the loudest? <laughs> you know, he figured putting on a pop song to start, doing a little dance routine would be uh, the best way to go. So then um, Fantastic starts to introduce themselves. They're their usual selves. They're very polished. It's very well rehearsed. It's a show. Um, although they did have a time where the mic cut out for a second, um, which I talk about in my story. And um, they had to kind of improvise off that. But they did a great job. Um and, you know, they, they just did, and this is the line Theodore told me over and over again. They just did their thing. And, you know, they did a lot of, like, call and response, a lot of, like, to the beat, y'all, yes, yes, y'all, that kind of stuff. Um, and they just wowed everyone. So then the night's over. They bring Cold Crush back on stage, and they say, um, all right, if you think Cold Crush won, scream. And it was so loud that Kevy Kev told me that he thought they lost. Kevy Kev from Fantastic said he thought they lost. But then when they said, now let's hear it for Fantastic, he couldn't even get the sentence out of his mouth. DJ Randy, who was hosting, couldn't even get the sentence out of his mouth. And it was like, what? People, you know, people were freaking out. And it was undisputed. Fantastic won. Got the thousand bucks. And they went straight to a um, burger place, like a place where you can get like a burger and breakfast type place back across the river, back to the Bronx. And um, they just kind of hung out and celebrated. And as Theodore said, they kept it moving. So, you know, for them, it was just another show. Well, that's what they say. But I think if you put a lie detector on them, they'd say that it meant a little bit more. Um, and Cold Crush was devastated. Kaz was, oh, he was so pissed. Because he says that, and uh, Charlie Chase told me this too. He says they know they were better that night. They just weren't as popular, which is kind of a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, it's it's incredible how much detail you're able to pull out of this. And I think obviously the conversations help. A lot of these characters are still alive um, and they're willing to share their story, which is awesome. But and as I guess we'll talk about now, the the night lives on through a cassette tape, um, which is rare for this period of time. There are there are recordings of events um, and radio broadcasts, certainly, but a battle like this this is, in my understanding, one of the first, if not the first, um, kind of hip-hop battle that was recorded and distributed around in tape form. Um, so much so that a lot of these tapes have still lived on, and, um, well, it's available now on the internet. That's obviously a huge plus for you in terms of writing the story. But, but yeah, let's transition to talk about the role that the cassette tape had in the legacy of the battle and I guess the the role of the cassette tape in hip-hop culture at that period of time, just period, if you can. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, the hip-hop is, the, sorry, the hip-hop, the cassette has changed the whole paradigm of the battle because the, um, 
you know, there was a recording. It was taken, most people believe it was taken by a guy named Tape Master, who was one of Cold Crush's people, you know, kind of hung with them. Um, I've actually heard a rumor that there were mics in the ceiling in Harlem World, and someone somewhere has a high-quality recording of this battle. Um, and if anyone's listening to that and you are that person, um, get in touch with us. But the um, the cassette was really cool because it, it just brought the, the experience of the battle to the people who were not going to be there that night. You know, so if you lived, if you were, say, a 14-year-old kid living in the South Bronx, you probably weren't going to go to Harlem World at 1 a.m. on July, you know, now July 4th, 1981 to watch this battle. But the tape allowed you to have that experience. Uh, and that was big for a lot of the early routines. So people started developing their favorites, right? Like if there was a new Treacherous 3 tape or a new Fearless 4 tape, like, and that's who you liked, you would go get it. Um, and there were a couple ways to get it. You could either copy it. So in other words, you had a friend who would, and when I say copy, I don't mean like now that they have the fancy machines to do it. I mean, you would just play your boombox. <laughs> like you would have your friend's boombox with a cassette in it. And you would have your boombox with a blank cassette in it, and you would just play them at the same time and hit record on yours. So not exactly the peak of technology, but uh, this was a way for people to listen to their, you know, these stars, their idols, their influences um, in a way that was, you know, like fairly easy to access. So what the, what the tape did, though, is people started developing their opinions of the battle solely based on the sound. And that's how you got a lot of people saying cold crush should have won because they're just hearing it. And when you hear it, you're hearing 31 minutes of Kaz's rhymes of the routine work of the harmonies of the singing, you know, like that kind of like just audio element. And then you're only hearing 15 minutes of fantastic, including, you know, some time that was just taken up with dancing. And so for those people, they started to ask the question of like, wait a minute, how did cold crush win? I mean, how did cold crush lose? So Cold Crush actually ended up gaining a ton of fans through this, through their loss, because people could actually hear what they were putting out there. Um, of course, like, Fantastic gets very defensive when you ask them about this. Like, um, <laughs> Prince Whipper Whip, who's very good friends with Kaz, by the way, but he told me, he's like, yeah, no, I've heard the tape. Same thing happened on the tape that happened on stage. We won. F your tape. <laughs> like, who cares? Um, and he's me. I think he makes a great point. I don't dispute that at all. I'm like, yeah, you won. You won by every parameter. Um, but, you know, the, the role of the, of the tape in, in a bigger sense of spreading hip-hop was, you know, it, if you were a fan of Curtis Blow, then you were in good shape because he had a record deal. If you were a fan of the Sugar Hill Gang, you were in good shape because they had a record deal. Other than that, no one had a record deal. So how would you listen to these people? If how would you even know that they existed if not for the tape? Unless you were really patched into the scene, you lived in the Bronx or you lived in Harlem, you know, there there were certain ways to find out. But I mean, for a lot of people who weren't like really in on it or weren't friends with a, a hip hop head or who weren't, you know, connected to the performer, I mean, this is how you experience hip hop. And you know, this is what allowed groups to start getting popularized. You know, groups like Cold Crush and Fantastic. It was all through word of mouth and through the tape. Um, and sort of the battle, you know, while it is the first um, major battle that made it onto a tape, it's also kind of like the end of something because all these groups started getting record deals right after this. Um, you know, because hip hop really started flourishing when Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five came out with the message, which was only the next year. 
and then all of a sudden hip hop is getting like reviewed in Rolling Stone, and you know it's like the the darling of like the the new uh, the new age you know college students in New York, and I can go on with that. But the the tape is important in this early era because this gave people in a window into what was happening when they couldn't necessarily get there. Yeah, it was also it was an affordable medium in order to duplicate and spread. Um, so I read a paper once from Anthony Kwame Harrison, it was probably about 15 years ago. And he talked about um, the paper was about the um, underground tapes in the San Francisco area in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, but he starts off the paper by basically making the claim that although Although we think of hip hop as like a as a broken up or divided by its elements, and one of those elements is the DJ, which is arguably during this period, during the early formative years, the most important kind of element. The we have this idea that therefore the medium of hip hop is the vinyl record because that's the medium that the DJ requires. However, on a fan's perspective, Kwame makes the argument that it was always the cassette tape. The cassette tape was what spread around it's what it, it was the boom box it was the the listeners um portal into hip-hop culture and it was an accessible affordable and realistic pragmatic way that sounds could be heard in canada or in the uk or just around the world in general um way more so than a vinyl record was able to offer. Um, so it had, I think that going for it as well. Like it, it's easy to duplicate a tape. It's really hard to do that with records. Yeah. I mean, I agree a thousand percent, you know, and it's a medium that everyone back in the seventies and eighties was comfortable with because, you know, I've, I heard this story a lot, like so much of your homework at school would involve a cassette, you know, like for Spanish class, for example, like record yourself saying these words, you know, so it, it was just like something people were comfortable with. It wasn't like this weird thing that you had to be a super techie guy to figure out. A lot of people are familiar, I think, with the characters of this story because of Charlie Ahern's Wild Style. Um, it's a film, comes out a couple years after this battle, um, and the film kind of takes up the final chapters of the book of Harlem World. Can you talk about Wild Style, what the movie was, and its role in this story? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked about Wild Style because it's such an important piece of the story and also just a really important piece of the story of hip hop. And uh, I don't think Charlie gets enough credit for what he did um, by making that movie. But yeah, so I mean, Wild Style is the ultimate example of what was happening right as the battle was taking place in this sort of 1980, 1981 era where hip hop is becoming this sort of punk rock medium and it's actually becoming popular in downtown manhattan at these art galleries alongside you know artists like the ramones and blondie and you know artists you wouldn't expect to be closely aligned with hip-hop but they actually were because punk was seen as like the alternative to you know like the led zeppelin kind of like glamour rock you know or queen or you know name your glam rock artist and um hip-hop was kind of the alternative to disco of like all right well you don't like roller skating and all that kind of stuff. Maybe you'd like this. And so they, they actually had a lot of alignment um, and, and people started talking from the two groups. And so Charlie Ahern was a figure in the sort of first group I mentioned, that kind of art gallery punk uh, scene in downtown Manhattan. 
and he became friends with a guy named Fred Braithwaite, Fab Five Freddy, as we know him today. And uh, Freddy started introducing Charlie to hip-hop figures, and he decided he wanted to make a hip-hop movie. And Wild Style was shot, it was shot, it was all using actors, right? Very few professional actors, though. The only professional actor was uh, Patty Astor, who um, I interviewed for the book. She's awesome. But, you know, just using, like, actors from the community. So people like Lee Quinones, who was a great uh, graffiti writer, and Lady Pink, uh, who I interviewed for the book, who was a great graffiti writer as well. And he just wanted to make a movie that kind of documented this culture. So, you know, all the arms of hip-hop culture, the graffiti, the b-boys, the dancing. He wanted to get DJs in there. He wanted to have MCs in there. And, um, you know, so when it came time to select, like, a group or multiple groups to kind of participate as the representatives of the musical end of hip-hop, he um, originally wanted to go with Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and the Funky Four plus one more, but um, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five were on tour, Funky Four was breaking up, and it just wasn't a great option. So he then sought out uh, the services of the Fantastic and Cold Crush. And they kind of stayed true to themselves in the movie. You know, they weren't called the exact same thing. Well, the Cold Crush were, but the, the Fantastic Five became the Fantastic Freaks. Um, but they stayed true to themselves and actually performed their own music. So in the routines, like in Wild Style, Ruby D says a, a line that he's known for, which was, uh, Ruby D is my name and I'm Puerto Rican, but you might think I'm black by the way I'm speaking. And I asked him about that line and not, that wasn't written for the movie. That was just something they used to say at shows. And um, Kaz does his very, very famous, like, among among the early hip-hop people, um, Kaz's Yvette verse is, like, the most famous single verse. And he does that um, in Wild Style, and that had been part of their shows for a couple years at that point. So, you know, they stayed very true to themselves, and, and the movie almost kind of watches like a documentary because it's it's so real, even though, like, it was a contrived plot. Um, so the movie is extremely significant in kind of preserving the stories of those two crews and of a lot of these early figures. Um, and it also kind of popularized hip hop around the world in kind of a different way. So or, or, let me rephrase, popularized this early hip hop around the world. So Cold Crush did a promotional tour of Japan, for example, where they got to perform, you know, all over. Um, and graffiti, you know, started becoming much more of like a, a popular medium for people to express themselves. Uh, so the movie was extremely significant, but sadly though, nothing really came of it afterwards, which is kind of, I think the tragic ending of this book where, you know, like this movie should have rocketed people to superstardom. And instead the whole thing kind of fizzled out. A new style of hip hop came in that people gravitated to more, you know, the, the big like five, six man groups were just not, popular you know that became almost like a um what's the word i'm thinking of like almost kind of like a, a memory act a nostalgia act um and so sadly you know like the groups kind of faded away and now we're left with you know these guys are mostly working day jobs at the same time wild style has become such an important kind of piece of canon within hip-hop lore, right? Like people that are really into hip-hop, they are 100% familiar with Wild Style. And I think 
I think in a large way, the film has went on to like popularize the, the legend of the battle at Harlem world in July of 81. Um, this idea that, oh yeah, the two stars of wild style um, have had a battle on record that you can hear. Um, well, maybe record is a, a little bit too strong of a word, but it's available that you can hear it. Um, I, I, I certainly think it's contributed to the legacy of the tape itself. I agree. I mean, so I'll, I'll be honest with you. When I first started very early research on this, I thought that I thought that Wildstyle had a video of the battle at Harlem World. Like that's how that's how intertwined it is, right? So I thought like that was videotaped from Harlem World and they put it in Wildstyle, but I was I later found out very quickly that those were two different things. So there was not necessarily any relation between them. But no, I mean Wildstyle emphasizes the rivalry between the crews. They had that very um, very good basketball scene where they line up on a basketball court and kind of say one line each to each other, you know, in like kind of a West side story type thing. Um, and I got to give credit to Charlie Ahern, the way he kind of let them just do their thing in, in the movie. You know, there was not a lot of scripting or a lot of direction. He told me uh, the only direction he gave when he filmed their performances was when I say start, we start. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I mean, just thinking in terms of like an actor, like that was probably really fun, but yeah, I mean the movie is part of the of the canon, and you know, and all the figures I talk about in this book are indelibly important. Which um, you know, and as we celebrate hip hop's fiftieth anniversary, like I, I'm happy to see that some of the people I'm talking about are gaining some recognition. But I also do feel as though, I also do feel as though um, I do feel as though this kind of era might have ended a little too soon. That's fair. There's there's this idea of hip hop going from like a local culture to like a part of pop culture, and the era that we're talking about it certainly certainly felt still localized, um, even if it was starting to gain traction in the kind of mainstream. It still held on to a lot of its kind of local traditions and roots. Yeah, I mean, and you know, even though it's held on to its local traditions and roots, sadly. The, the sort of big hip hop group is almost extinct. And I think that's, and I do think that's kind of sad because this is very different than what a lot of people imagine as hip hop now. And I do think that there is some, I think that there is something to be said for the style. I think that it's, I think that it's very authentic. It's very true to yourself. Um, and, you know, I just, I, I can't compliment the style enough in terms of the skill it takes to, you know, to MC in front of a DJ who's picking out samples and replacing records as you go. And that sort of whole process I find just to be thrilling to watch, even on these old videos. You touched on this earlier in the conversation, but one of the, one of the things that I think about in terms of just kind of hip hop scenes in general, and it's an aspect that I think a lot of people overlook, but that's the fact that well, actually, you close off the book. You, the line that you close it off with is you say, not bad for some neighborhood kids just hanging around after school. And I love that because it touches on the fact that these are mostly just kids, right? This is a youth culture. And I think it's very easy to look at 
look at stories about hip hop and imagine it through our kind of adult lens, um, without understanding that these kids are like they're, they're children. They're in they're in high school. They're they're performing after school. They're having fun with their friends. Um, they're doing things that just kids normally do, and it resulted in something that we love and we idolize and we talk about now, but it is just a youth culture at the heart of it, or at least it was. Can you talk about those closing words? Not bad for some neighborhood kids just hanging around after school and what your kind of thoughts on that are. Yeah. I mean, I closed the book with that because that was my biggest takeaway through my research, which is, you know, as a teacher now, like I see teenagers every day, I see what they do. And the idea that a group of teenagers could just invent a new art form is like, is crazy. You know, like it's amazing what these guys were able to do. You know, they Grand Wizard Theodore talked about how um, they figured out how to, you know, open up a light pole to get, uh, like you see in the in the movie Beat Street, there's a uh, scene with that. But they figured out how to open up a light pole to get power so that they could, you know, have parties in the street. Um, you hear about they would organize hooky parties where they would all just plan to skip school one day and just go hang out and, and make music. You know, Theodore, as a high school student, invented the record scratch accidentally because a, a teacher, not a teacher, the vice principal knew that he liked to DJ and was asking him to um, make a cassette so that they can play during lunch at high school. And his mom came in to yell at him. And so he had to put his hand on the record to stop it. <laughs> and then he started rocking it back and forth to keep it in the same place. And then when he listened back on the cassette, he, he liked the sound of a record scratch. And this is just a kid, you know, a kid living in his mom's house. And so that's kind of my big takeaways. These guys are taking, you know, art forms that they already know. And they're just making something brand new out of it. And I think it's just one of the, one of the real great American stories, you know, it's how this this hip hop genre of music just really sprouted from guys who were just hanging out, you know, guys who were just, you know, maybe they were creative, you know, Kaz talked about he really loved uh, to draw, for example, you know, that was one of his favorite things. Um, and, you know, he all, oh, and something else that was interesting about Kaz, that's kind of part of the story is he loved to listen to rock radio and to um, R&B radio, you know, to kind of get influences for, for what he was doing. Um, and so I guess what I'm trying to say is like that, that was my biggest takeaway from this research is that these young kids made something incredible, you know, almost by accident. I'm not, not quite by accident. I want to give them more credit than that, but you know, hip hop is this truly American organically made art form. And I think that the people who did it should take immense pride in that. I agree. I agree. All right, John, I don't want to take up too much more of your time here. That being said, I did want to ask you, what are you what are you currently working on since you've wrapped up Harlem World? Um, have you immersed yourself in another larger project or what's what's next for you? Well, I um, I've immersed myself in a teaching project. I'm moving to I'm teaching theater now instead of English, so that's a bit of a transition, but uh, I'm excited about it. But in terms of writing, I I'm pretty sure my next book is going to be about uh, the movie Jaws sticking in the seventies. I just love seventies culture and uh, being a Massachusetts resident. Um, Jaws is very ubiquitous around here. And that's kind of what I'm looking at. I'm looking to research kind of all the, the juicy behind the scenes tidbits that um, people might not know about because although it's kind of common knowledge that Jaws was a uh, bleep show um, to make, 
I don't think people realize just how close it was to never have never being seen by anyone. So that's where I'm, that's where I'm looking right now. Oh, that's amazing. I can't wait to, to read any future material that you end up putting out. Again, for those that are listening at home, the the book, and it's published, uh, when does this come out? September 12th? Uh, well, we say dropping. See, it's a hip-hop. Dropping. So dropping okay. September 12th. It's dropping <laughs> Okay, perfect. So the, the book is called Harlem World, How Hip-Hop's Super Showdown Changed Music Forever. It's available through John Hawkins University Press. I'm correct on this? That I is believe. correct. Okay. Um, once again, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you. And yeah, thank you. Thank you, Alex. I really enjoyed talking to you today. And, uh, you know, for anyone that feels like picking this book up, you have my just sincerest thank you. You know, you're making someone's dream come true. And uh, everyone that reads this book, I'm, I'm indebted to you. So I appreciate it.